You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Maravellis, the events director here at City Lights, welcoming you, especially those of you online. Thank you for joining us as well. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples. There were several dialects spoken along this peninsula up until very recently. I want to take a moment to pay our respects to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. It is fabulous to be back in the poetry room after many, many moons. Uh, it's so great to see you all. And for those of you who are online, you get a little bit of that experience too, sort of in 2D, but hey, you know, it's the poetry room. So we are very delighted to have Miriam Gerbo with us here tonight celebrating a really fantastic new book, Creep, Accusations and Confessions. Uh, it is a no-holds-barred, yeah, rockin'. Just going to wait a moment until we have a few more folks coming in. Ooh, yeah, yeah. So, Creep is a no-holds-barred essay collection that performs a kind of forensic study of what makes a creep and the societal structures that enable cultural oppression and toxicity. Miriam Gerba studies the ways in which oppression is collectively enacted, sustaining the social structures that unfairly distribute suffering and cut short the lives of some of the most vulnerable in our society. In her signature style of razor wit and evocative prose, Creep offers an antidote to troll culture and offers the reader a way to challenge its manifestations. Ms. Gerba is the acclaimed author of the book Mean, a New York Times editor's choice, and Oprah Magazine ranked as one of the best LGBTQ books of all time. Let's hear it. She is both an artist and a writer, her work having been shown in art galleries, museums, and community centers around the country. Her essays and criticism have appeared in the Paris Review, Time, Four Columns, amongst others. She makes her home in Pasadena, California. And joining her tonight is somebody who has not been here for many, many moons. I can remember we hosted you. It must have been at least 10 years ago. And I'm so very happy that Mari Naomi is doing the honors tonight. Um, they, yeah, give it up. They are the award-winning author and illustrator of the book Kiss and Tell, a romantic resume. Also the book Dragon's Breath and Other True Stories, amongst numerous other titles. Their most recent book is thought called I Thought You Loved Me. Can we flash them? Do you have a copy? Ah, okay. Well, here's another case of like where we're messed up by bad distribution in this country, but find it online. It's an awesome and beautiful book, and I'm sad we don't have it here tonight, but who knows? We're going to maybe try to find a way to get it. So their work has appeared in nearly 100 print publications and has been featured on websites such as the New Yorker's Daily Shouts, the Washington Post, the LA Review of Books, amongst others. Their comics have been translated into French, into German, and Russian. So before we begin, I want to let you all know, those of you online, we have posted links with which you may buy books. Those of you who are here tonight, the way we're going to work this out is we're going to try to get everyone sort of on that side of the room coming in this way instead of just sort of all crowding in to get your book signed because that's not tactful. So we want to be tactful. Um, thank you all for joining us tonight. Really thrilled. Welcome to you both. Chameleon's going to read us a bit from her book, and then we're going to gab. <laughs> Go for it. So I'm going to I'm going to begin by reading from um what I think is the second essay in Creep. Um, the essay is titled Kukui. And um, for those who are unfamiliar with um. Latin American or Hispanic folklore, a cuckoo is somebody who you absolutely do not want babysitting your children. Um, cuckoos are, are, are child cannibals. They, they eat children. Um, and the essay cuckoo um, explores the misdeeds of uh, several legendarily um, bad men. And it 
uh, begins in what was my classroom. I was a high school teacher for about uh, 15 years and I taught um, civics and economics. So this opens uh, in my classroom. I used to introduce a certain civics lesson with a mugshot. The last time I taught the class, I projected this sad photo onto a screen mounted at the front of my classroom. A tired Mexican, his upper lip lightly shadowed, gazed upon us. Leaving my podium, I approached the screen, pointing at the mugshot with my yardstick. Check it out, I said. This picture was taken by Phoenix police in 1963. You can see the guy's booking number on the sign he's holding up. We're gonna talk to our neighbors for a moment about who we think this man is. And we've got a little while to discuss the following questions. Why was this mugshot taken? What did this guy do to become famous? A football player growled, give us a clue, Gerba. <laughs> okay, I bet you already know this guy's name. There's a speech named after him that I bet a lot of you have memorized. My high schoolers, especially those who looked like the tired Mexican, took their instructions seriously. I roamed, listening to them improvise his identity, history, and significance. Shy boys huddled, discussing the possibility that the guy in the mugshot had immigration-related problems. A few steps away, girls vigorously argued. One faction believed the tired Mexican was caught driving without car insurance. Another faction believed that he'd hit an old lady with his car. Turning to a girl with braids, a girl with braces said, I think he got busted stealing food to feed his family. Aw, said the girl with braids. That's so sweet. I vote for stealing food. Once five minutes had passed, I announced, we have some time to talk as a whole class now. Anyone who wants to can share who they think this man is, why he's famous, and why the cops took his picture. Since it wasn't every day that a Mexican appeared in our curriculum, the kids were itching to connect with the man in the mugshot. One boy shouted, that's my Uncle Edgar. Another yelled, no way, that's my cousin Hector. Other students compared the mugshot to friends and classmates, pointing out similarities between eyes, noses, lips, hair, and ears. A boy named Freddie blurted, that nerd was late returning books to the library. Everyone laughed. How come you think that, I asked. Because that fool looks like Kevin Ortega. I tried not to laugh. The mugshot did resemble Kevin Ortega, a nerd I'd be teaching next period. Once every kid who wanted to speak had gotten their turn, I said, all your theories were interesting to hear. Now I'll tell you who this guy is and what he got accused of. This guy's name is Ernesto Miranda. He didn't get in trouble for jaywalking or stealing milk or running people over with his car or for keeping his library books too long. In 1963, Ernesto Miranda was charged with kidnapping and rape. Kids gasped. That guy? Rape? Yup. But he looks normal. I said, I agree. Perfectly normal. So normal, in fact, that he looks like many people we know. Everyone was sitting up straight. You guys want to hear the story of what happened to him? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> it's not over, girl, but it's just begun. <laughs> I, I know you had to change all the names for this. Um, otherwise, poor little Ortega boy. <laughs> <laughs> I love this story. Um, the, this, this was a particularly powerful story. I was actually listening to this story today again on the audiobook. The audiobook's amazing in Miriam's voice. Um, and this actually opens, I almost asked her 
this backstage, but I'm like, I've got to save it for the podcast slash reading. We used to have a podcast together called Ask by Girls. So I'm just used to saying save it for the podcast. Um, so, so in this essay, you talk, you go into the history of Mr. Miranda. You talk about um, the Night Stalker, which I, as a little person, was very terrified of uh, sneaking into. Like, I, I had many sleepless nights as a child worrying that he was going to sneak into my Marin County home. Um, and it, it's so interesting because I remember when you started writing. Oh, is everyone here? Okay. All right. You're in San Francisco. Like the youngs. Oh. We're young. <laughs> young for a dinosaur. OMG. All right. Tough questions then. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Richard Ramirez? But I mean, oh my gosh. Um, but but back backtracking, um, when you started writing this book, I remember um just I, I remember you pond like pondering, like, okay, well, how am I gonna structure things? And and it's I feel like it was just yesterday where you're like, okay, what am I gonna what am I gonna write about? And to this like very this this book, which feels like it's so your mind is labyrinthine. Let's just put it that way. Like when I'm, so I also write memoir, but I do it in comics form. And when I'm doing it, it's very like, okay, this is what happened. Whereas you go a step further than having your own perspective uh, to look back on. You also have the perspective of history. And I was wondering, how do you do this? Like when you're, when you sat down to write this particular essay, what were you, what was your goal? And how did you arrive to the end where you're just weaving through all of this historical stuff and then tying it to your own experience? Like, tell us your secrets, Gerba. <laughs> well, I'm... Oh, I should use a microphone? Okay, for the sake of the YouTube. Okay. So um, so I, I do start um, sometimes with like the notion of a thesis, right? And so in the case of the essay Kukui, um, what I wanted to explore was, of course, the notion of the creep, because the creep is is the motif that unifies all of the the essays. Um, but what I I wanted to do with that essay in particular was um was explore the idea of um of of the creep sort of hidden in plain sight. Mm. And um, and when I taught civics um, and I would teach this lesson on Ernesto Miranda, it was always very sort of startling to me how shocked my students were to learn that a man who looked so familiar to them or a young man who looked so familiar to them was capable of a crime that they considered to be so extraordinary. And through that lesson, what I was attempting to do was illustrate that uh, ordinary people commit ordinary, quote unquote, crimes. Mm -hmm. And so um, a rapist can look like a brother, a father, a cousin, because rapists are brothers and fathers and cousins. And so and so I am. Um, I use history often as like a, a doorway into essays. And although my essays all involve personal narrative and personal history, I also understand that time didn't start with me. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I always have to determine what brought me to the present moment and um, what is the history that's informing the moment that I'm writing about? But I also write with my eyes on the future. And so I also consider, like, how is this work going to age? And with whom is this work going to be in conversation uh, once it leaves me? So I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to sort of situate uh, my work in, in past, present, and future simultaneously. That's a lot of pressure. I don't know how you get any work done. <laughs> so you're really thinking about your audience, not yeah. just your audience presently, but your audience in the future. But like, 
man, that's impossible. <laughs> Does that ever like, how, how, how do you, how are you able to do that without getting all knotted up? Like I'm getting knotted up just thinking about it. You know, I think that, that, that having been a teacher and especially having been a high school teacher is what enables me to have that relationship to the page. Because the, the same way that I would approach my students as an audience is the same way that I approach my readers as an audience. That is so interesting. And that completely makes sense. You are such a teacher. <laughs> no, it's true. Like you, you, like, I feel like whenever we hang out, like I learned something like historical, <laughs> which is, which is weird. Cause I thought I hated history. Like I, I am not a fan of school. History is incredible, but there are um, a lot of uh, horribly bad history teachers, and That's so it's really correct. teachers who 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 wreck history for students. Well, I'm um, I feel like I'm only now at age fifty, young, um, <laughs> finally getting interested in history through podcasts and through Miriam Gerba, so um, and other essayists. Uh, so that that's really interesting. I never I never really thought of that. Like, uh, so when you um. Again, when you're when you had the seed of this idea, mm -hmm. did you already know Ramirez was going to be part of it? I knew that I wanted to write about Ramirez and I wanted to write about Miranda. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to write about both of those figures in relation to another figure who is much lesser known, who is a man who sexually assaulted me when I was 19 and who for years, I would sort of privately think of as my own Richard Ramirez. And so I, I wanted to connect these figures. Wow. Yeah. And so for, for um, uh, those who are unfamiliar, I, um, I wrote a memoir called Mean, which preceded Creep. And, very good. Very good book. <laughs> and I reference Mean quite a bit in Creep. And, um, and the essay from which I was reading Kukui, um, uh, goes on to explore Richard Ramirez and, and his, his, his killing spree as a result of, um, uh, the a question that was asked to me by a student. So I had two students who were hanging out in my classroom after I had, um, completed a Miranda lesson. I would do two different Miranda lessons. And after the Miranda lesson, one of my students began to talk to me about how she was taking um, a forensic class. Um, and she was incredibly enthusiastic about this class and was telling me that um, she appreciated the class so much because they had completed a unit on serial killers. And then she, she told me she had done a presentation on her favorite serial killer. And then she asked me who my favorite serial killer was. And that question was so distressing and so disturbing to me that she was fetishizing these figures, but that fetishization was happening as a result of the teacher because that teacher was the one who had given this assignment. And so, um, and so I could not answer this student. I couldn't answer her um, uh, in the way that I wanted to. I couldn't say to her, you know, the reason that I, I, I don't admire uh, these figures is because they've intruded upon my own life. Um, and uh, she professed her admiration for Richard Ramirez, which chilled me because the man who sexually assaulted me when I was 19 was sentenced to death row and became the neighbor of Richard Ramirez. Y yes. <laughs> so so I, I can't say that to a 17 year old girl who's seated in my classrooms. So my, my palms were sweating, you know, and, and I, I just tried to entertain the question. But, but in a sense, Kukui is a very, long answer to her question. So if that student ever encounters, I really hope she this, reads it. this book, she'll have an understanding as to why that question made my heart do this. That is, yeah. I mean, that is so terrifying. You talked a lot about um, Ramirez. I mean, when I was younger, I also was a little obsessed with serial killers. Um, not that I admired them, but yeah. I was very confused about mm -hmm. like how a human could be this way and so I became a little bit obsessed yeah. and I learned all about them like okay well like what is it like I mean ultimately you, you cannot learn how to be a sociopath if you're not a sociopath like I said that, <laughs> that was what I have finally come up with after many years of, of reading about serial killers but um you go through such an extensive history about Ramirez, mm -hmm. things that I, even though I've read and listened to so many things about him, like I didn't know about his 
very creepy uncle who certainly uh, killed more people than he did. Yeah. Um, and I did not know that he killed someone in front of him. Like that is huge. Yeah. Like where, so did, where I, did you research? So, like, so I argue that Ramirez was initiated into violence through domestic violence because the domestic violence murder was perpetrated in front of him Absolutely. as a young person by someone he admired by somebody he admired very much. And so what I'm attempting to do is I'm attempting to draw the connection between uh, domestic violence and then violence that happens outside of the house as well and how domestic violence tends to be the training ground for that and it's largely ignored people think that there's some sort of border around the house there is no border around the house and 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 borders can't prevent travel anyways we all know this so <laughs> um where did you where did you like find out about this guy like what what resources did you i mean i know you have like a whole so there's there's one um there's there's one biography on him that's a very extensive biography and i relied on that but i also um uh used uh, newspaper archives and um i also used legal archives and then there were also these sort of personal connections. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned, the, the, the connection through San Quentin, where you know my perpetrator was incarcerated alongside him. They weren't necessarily next door neighbors, but they were inhabiting the same block. Um, and I and often I'll take threads which appear in one essay and then weave them into another essay. And that even happens with Ramirez. For example, uh, I have an essay titled Locas, which is about my cousin Desiree, who I'm- um, We're gonna get to that next. <laughs> yes, who became a gangster. And um, when my cousin was in court in Los Angeles, uh, she was before a judge named um, Judge Tynan. And uh, Tynan um, oversaw a program that my cousin was required to participate in, legally required to participate in. Tynan also, presided over the trial of Richard Ramirez. And uh, my cousin told me that um, when bad behavior would ensue in Judge Tynan's courtroom, he would sometimes tell people, if you don't behave, you're gonna have to sit in the Richard Ramirez chair. And Richard Ramirez's chair was in the courtroom and sometimes people would be assigned to sit in it. And I asked my prima, I said, well, what did it look like? And she goes, ah, something you'd find at Goodwill. <laughs> <So> <laughs> But she she never had to sit in the Ramirez chair. She, <laughs> all right. You're you've got you've done so much research and I've, I've read reviews where they, they agree with me. So I know it's not just me <laughs> being bad at research. Like you're you're very, very thorough and it's always been very admirable. Yeah, it's probably your teacher and your parent, parental teacher, <laughs> teacher backgrounds. Um when you're when you're researching stuff like this, like the times that I've had to to look into this sort of thing for work, um, it's very difficult emotionally. Like, how did you not go completely insane? Like, how did you not break down every day, or did you break down? Like, how did how did that? How did you protect your mental health? So some aspects of this book were more difficult than others. The title essay, which is the final essay, uh, was the most uh, grueling to write. Uh, because it's a chronicle of my experience of um, intimate partner violence. And um, I write very explicitly and very graphically about what was done to me. And so that essay was the most challenging to write. Um, and I, there were different interventions that I used in order to maintain my supposed sanity. <laughs> um, I, I used... Um, I used some magic. Um, and so I have various altars in my home. I have four or five of them. Um, and so I spent a lot of time at those altars, um, meditating and praying. Um, and I also did not want to, uh, offend any of the spirits about whom I was writing. And so when I did have the opportunity to go to the graves of people uh, who are subjects in the book, I went to their graves and I made offerings. Oh. Um, for example, uh, uh, Richard Ramirez struck in Whittier, which is where my grandmother lives. And um, my grandmother is, is now buried in Whittier. She's buried in Rose Hills. 
And uh, down the hill from my grandmother, uh, about a one minute walk are two of Richard Ramirez's victims. And so I went to go give flowers to my grandmother. And then I went to go give flowers to them as well. So I brought them ofrendas um, in order to, 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 to show my respect uh, to, to these figures. And so I cultivated a relationship with, um, with some of the spirits that, that I was writing about. And then I also used um, different forms of very like tactile therapy to put myself back into my body. And one of those was culinary therapy. And so um, I found that when I needed to force myself back into my body, baking was one way of doing that. And so I became very proficient at pies. Oh. <laughs> and then I also had sweets to put on the ofrenda, so, or to put on the altars. Um, so I got very good at pies. And then the other thing that really soothed my nervous system was um, making tortillas. So I had mountains of tortillas. <laughs> so I, I I developed the tortilla therapy. That's incredible. <laughs> I remember when you went on that baking. Only. Oh my god! And do flour. My flour tor flour. tortillas are fucked up. I have not mastered them yet. They're so like tortillas are harder than they look. You guys, like they're not a zero. They're very difficult. When you went through your baking kick, I remember going, what is going on with Miriam? <laughs> this is explaining so much. <laughs> you know, I did feel, um, and I did want to comment, like throughout the book, it felt very respectful to all the victims. And, and I almost felt like they were like the ghosts on your, the angels on your shoulder, like kind of guiding you. Like it felt like respectful in such a way that I don't think I've seen before. Um, and I, I feel like, like maybe you feel connected to the woman that he your um guy killed yeah uh, it seems like you you definitely have some kind of spiritual or something connection at least that's what it feels like to me and um anyway thank, yeah thank you I, on behalf of all, all these people lot about victims of femicide and for those who might be unfamiliar with the term femicide Femicide refers to the killing of a woman due to misogyny, right? And so what I'm attempting to do in many ways through this book is to construct a literary altar for the women that we have lost. And I cannot speak on their behalf. So I'm not attempting to channel these women by any means. But what I'm attempting to do is to honor them, um, to restore as much of their dignity as I possibly can, to defend them and to provide a counter narrative that opposes the narrative that um, was perpetuated by uh, their killer and then also by institutions that collaborated with the killers. So that's what I'm attempt attempting to do. And I do invoke altars repeatedly throughout throughout the um, collection. I've always liked your altars. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, just so you know, we will be having a Q&A later. Um, the way we're gonna do it, is um post-it notes i don't know if you already have oh you have them okay so just think of questions throughout this and and um we're gonna this is our yeah we'll, we'll be doing that <laughs> later um i did want to move on to your um your essay about your cousin which i i think is such a powerful piece Thank in the you. book um you know i've always wanted to meet and be best friends with your cousin and now i feel like i am without her <laughs> knowing it's kind of weird um how do you want to talk a little bit about what that essay sure. is before we get into Absolutely. it? So um, the essay that, that Mari's referring to is titled Locas. And Locas is different from all of the other essays in the collection because it is the only one that was commissioned by a family member. So uh, my cousin Desiree contacted me and she expressed to me, and I'm paraphrasing, that she was... Um, very bothered by how she exists in the archive. So my cousin was criminalized. She was criminalized at a very early age, at age 14. And she spent um, 15 years total in various jails and prisons in California. And uh, so she exists within the criminal legal archive. And then crime reporters have also written about her as well. And my cousin hates that that is, or that that was sort of her legacy, so to speak. And so she wanted that corrected 
And most importantly, what she wanted for me to communicate, what she tasked me with communicating was an explanation of how a female gangster is made. A female gangster is not born. Um, and so she nominated me to tell her story because I've been by her side her entire life. And as children, when we were about 13 years old, um, we created our own gang. So there were only two of us in it. We didn't recruit anybody else. And we called ourselves Pocas Pero Locas. <laughs> PPL. And we would throw signs <laughs> to PPL to this day. So, <laughs> so when my prima hit me up and asked me to write the essay, I can't say no, because I'm still in PPL. I haven't been jumped out. So... <laughs> So it's a tribute to her. I didn't realize that she commissioned you. That's so oh, she called me up and she's like, "Listen, little prima." So I was. <laughs> now, how much input did she have? A lot. Did you so interview? We did a series of interviews. Okay. Yeah. So there were about four or five different sit downs and interviews, and then follow up questions, and then research. Yeah. So, so I think that that essay. Uh, was co-written. So I'll describe it as being co-written by the two of us. So, in the, and quite a bit of it is in her voice. It's beautiful. <laughs> I, I love it. And um, that's really cool. So like how, sorry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> wow. Um, did, did you like send it to her yes. like, throughout the, like, so she read all the iterations of it because I wanted to make sure that I was getting everything right and that I was misrepresenting nothing. So every time there was a new, uh, a, a new iteration, I would email it to her. I would ask her to read it. And then I would ask her to give me thumbs up or thumbs down and tell me what needed to be modified. So we wrote it together over the course of two years, two years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you write my story too. <laughs> by myself. And um today my cousin is is a cook. That's what she does now. So we Aww. we we're like we're we're food people. Are you baking buddies? Yeah. No, she's <laughs> like her her specialty is tamales. Oh yeah. Amazing. And she can make excellent vegan tamales too. Like wow. she's got the recipe down. She perfected it. It's a secret too. She won't share it. So don't ask me. <laughs> Even with your gang member. You. I'm so rude. <laughs> I'm loyal. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, mm -hmm. Wait, let me see what other notes I have. Um, so we're, it looks like it's 637. At what point should we start taking Q and A's? Okay. Okay. Awesome. Um, Sorry, collaborate. I have my eyesight. <laughs> I'm just going to zoom. Um, let's see. So I did want to talk about um, your audio book. Uh, as someone who used to be in a podcast with you and used to edit the podcast, like it, it was just, it was so nice to hear your voice telling the story. What was that like um, to, to, to tell it? Like, in you know probably in like a studio room or whatever like was it hard it wasn't totally unfamiliar because part of my process involves my ear so i'm very committed to um to the musicality of prose and in order to ensure that the prose has uh, a suitable rhythm i have to read everything that i write aloud to myself allowed to myself until I get what I call like an aha feeling. Mm -hmm. And then I know that, that the prose is ready. And so I've read these, all of the pieces in this to myself and to others countless times. And so I already knew how to read it when I, I found myself in the recording studio. Um, but I will say that, um, when I, when it came time to read the final essay, the title essay, that was very challenging. And I did actually begin to cry um, at certain moments and, and the producer loved it. <laughs> he, he was like, emotion, emotion, emotion. Yeah. So, oh my God. 
So I, I thought that I was ruining it and that they were going to have to edit it out, but he wanted my tears. So <laughs> yeah. He's like, could you cry some more? Please? Yeah, super enthusiastic about it. <laughs> I remember from our podcast th- days that you hated the sound of your voice though. Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Okay, it's weirdo. Used to it. <laughs> did you ever listen to your like record it and listen back Mm -mm, i can't it weirds me out you i mean you have a lovely voice Uh, so the first time i met miriam we were on tour together for this thing called sister spit which was a traveling uh queer literary roadshow thing so like when i think of you as a writer, I also think of you as a performer. So I feel like the audiobook just fit perfectly into that. Like I enjoy performing in the moment and I enjoy like interacting with audiences, but I don't like recordings of my voice. Like those terrify me. You are a weirdo. No, it's not. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never listen to any of our podcasts. Because it's my voice, Mark. Oh my God, they were so good though. <laughs> <laughs> They're no longer out there. I'm not, I'm not promoting them. Um, <laughs> Did we want to do any Q&A stuff? Does anyone have any questions that they would like to pass to me on their notebooks? Okay. But that's yeah, cool. I'll yeah, you can them. you can put several on them if you want to, too. Yeah, if you'll just pass them forward to the yeah. front. There's like little post-it notes. Okay. That's okay. That's <laughs> pretty good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> are these uh, anybody else and then if and then if there's more we can just pass them up as they as they develop <laughs> i mean i would i would let you doctor <laughs> let's see well let's start with this easy to read one <laughs> um are the characters real or fictionalized is the so all of like these are all nonfiction essays um and i am grappling with some figures who are very well known and then other figures who are incredibly obscure and familial for example um i have an essay that critiques uh john didion's racial politics and then i have an essay that critiques my grandfather's gender politics so I'm um, so I do take aim at those who are rather distant from me, but I take aim at those in my family and I take aim at myself too. I did want to, I forgot about the grandfather one. That was, that was a really fun one. <laughs> <laughs> that essay is, is what I'm describing as an anti-tribute. So it's, 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 but it's still a tribute. It's still a tribute, but it's being rendered in a way that I don't, no is necessarily pleasing to my grandfather. So my grandfather was um, an incredible misogynist. Uh, He was a poet. He was a publicist. He claims to have been the first publicist in the city of Guadalajara, but the problem is he was a publicist. (laughs) We don't know what's true. (laughs) And my grandfather uh, wanted fame. He was extremely fame hungry and he wanted to become the poet laureate of Mexico. And he he never even became the poet laureate of Guadalajara. Like he was rejected by his own city. So that didn't happen. And uh, my grandfather developed an incredible amount of resentment and envy toward a friend that he made when he was in seminary. So my grandfather came from a peasant family, came from an indigenous family. And uh, in order to be educated, he attended seminary in the city and he befriended a man named Juan Rulfo, (laughs) who is one of the preeminent novelists of Latin America. And so that was my grandfather's classmate. When you were doing, um, when you were doing that uh, essay, what, what was your research like for that? Like, were you interviewing family members? So I did historical research. I did anthropological research. I spoke with historians. I looked through digital archives. I interviewed both my mother and my father and learned information about my grandfather that had not been uh, revealed to me before. My grandfather also wrote several essays about his relationship to Rulfo that were published in Excelsior, which is a, a Mexico City newspaper. So I pulled my grandfather's own words. Um, 
And so in a sense, I let him speak for himself because I do, I do quote him. Um, and then I also did some magic with my grandfather's spirit. <laughs> awesome. uh -huh. so, so did you believe everything your mother told you? Just kidding. <laughs> I love her mother. <laughs> We're besties. Hmm. Not to brag or anything. Is is your publish is Simon and Schuster the same person who published American Dirt? No, that was Macmillan. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Macmillan published American Dirt and it was on their flat iron imprint. Okay. So sorry, whoever wrote. <laughs> um someone wrote, uh, Hazel, I love writing. At what age did you know you wanted to express yourself in words? Um I'm sure it's like, it's really difficult to answer that question because I've always enjoyed, um, externalizing my interiority. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been a ham, you know? So, um, so, so it's difficult for me to say I did not though, as a child have, uh, uh, writerly or literary aspirations. There are some people who tell stories about, you know, wanting to be a writer from childhood mm -hmm. or adolescence. And that was not the case with me. Um, my grandmother, um, was a painter. Um, and she took care of me a lot during my childhood. And when we would spend time together, we would often draw or paint together. And so, um, I, I became enamored of visual arts and I had imagined, or I had, uh, believed that I would follow in, in, in my abuelita's footsteps, but I didn't, I followed in my misogynist grandfather's footsteps. <laughs> you have some art under your belt. I do. I do you have some art under my belt. Some amazing collage. I went to a yes. gallery showing of your collage works a number of years ago. So it's not too late. So you're right. Yes. I, I yeah, I, I do make some visual art, but I feel like I'm I'm more competent at, mm, with with words than pretty, I am. The, with... the collages were pretty amazing. Thank you, Mari. Yeah. I, 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 it really <laughs> bugs me this whole Northern American thing about how, like, what do you do? Like you get to do one yeah. thing, but like you do a lot of things. Thank you. So and by you, I mean all of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the same person said, how do you process writing things? The people you love are going to see that is hard for me. Not um, me, the person who asked. Yeah. <laughs> so the assumption is that people I love are going to see it. Um, so I, I do write about my family. I write about myself. I write about people in my world. Um, and, uh, there are, there have been times when I have approached those about whom I've written to ask for permission. For example, uh, when I worked on Mean, the memoir, I wrote about my sister. Uh, my sister uh, had a horrifying struggle with anorexia during her teenage years. And I asked for permission to write about that. And she gave me permission. So there are times when I do solicit permission from a person um, uh, because, um, I don't want to, um, contribute to any sort of injury. Um, and then as far as, for example, my parents go, um, I warned them away from some of my work. For example, um, I've given my mother a copy of this and I've told her, for example, <laughs> you know, she's lived through so much of it. She was at my side. She was at my side when I was experiencing, you know, IPV. She doesn't need to relive an aestheticized version of it. So, um, so what I often do is, um, I'll explain to my parents what, um, uh, work is about and then advise whether or not it's it's going to be painful for them and they they tend to honor um my advice so if i tell them it's going to be painful for you to read this they stay away from it and then if i tell them this is benign <laughs> you might enjoy it then they read it you're so lucky <laughs> <laughs> i have a lot of very curious people in my life <laughs> yeah, yeah my parents are really good about that and like, and like my brother doesn't touch anything I do. Really? He's into reptiles and martial arts. This is not for him. Like, <laughs> um, let's see. 
I'm curious as to why you chose Miranda as an example of people who of how people who commit horrible crimes look normal. The ultimate passage of the Miranda right rule. Probably many have been treated more fairly was to show some level of ambivalence of human nature. I don't understand. Does yeah, anybody want to? You, you chose someone mm -hmm. um, who looks quote normal, mm -hmm. but it's like why well, this person did something horrible. Mm -hmm. But the person you chose mm -hmm. you know, because of the rule, it has probably resulted in a lot of people being saved from false incarceration mm -hmm. or uh, being abused by the criminal justice. Mm -hmm. So was there a conscious decision in, in picking him because? And it's a state standard. It's a state standard. We have to teach Ernesto Miranda. So I uh -huh. gave my Miranda lesson and I couched a lot into it. And so one of the elements of that lesson is this is a man who was convicted of rape and he looks like us. And so that was part of the lesson. But that was not the whole lesson. Thank you. Uh, from Estella, were you ever afraid to speak your truth? Hell yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a domestic violence survivor. <laughs> you can't speak your truth if you live in a home that is plagued by domestic violence. Yeah. So yes, I've been terrified to speak my truth before. Absolutely. The um, one thing about memoir is that, you know, memoirists get to control like how and when mm -hmm. the truth comes out um which is very important especially in a situation like this i think maybe a good question would be like at what point did it go from like i can't talk about this like what was your turning point when you felt ready um well in terms of writing about ipv um about your own personal or about just generally about my life I about myself so. yeah um, so, okay. So I think the turning, okay. So turning point came for me, um, uh, prior to mean. So for a very long time, I minimized the assault that I experienced when I was 19 years old in 1996. I, um, I minimized it because I, I survived and somebody else didn't. The migrant woman's life was taken. Um, and so I told myself that I ought to be very, very grateful and that I ought to put that experience behind me. And um, the experience haunted me. Uh, and it still haunts me. Um, but but it 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 haunted me in in very, very, very heavy ways. And so once I began to acknowledge that weight, um, I began to um seek out narratives written by survivors and um while i was uh admiring in certain ways of some of the narratives that i came across i also found that there was a pattern and almost like a template to the way that these survivor narratives were being written and one um element that that a lot of these narratives had in common is that they were humorless and I am able to uh, survive horror by using humor. And so I began to think about writing a survivor memoir that was um, saturated in very dark comedy. And that was when I began to write about myself as opposed to others, as I started to explore uh, the horror that I had experienced, but I could only do it at the intersection with humor. Yeah. So when I first met you, you, you touched on a lot of, I mean, this was 2010 or 11, mm -hmm. like that, that was your whole like poetry shtick was like very uncomfortable things, like mm -hmm. but told as jokes, which yeah was just so uncomfortable to watch, but like in a very <laughs> pleasant way. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was challenging myself at the time to I was challenging myself to sit with discomfort and then inviting people to sit in discomfort with me. Um, and 
those were sort of like humor experiments. And, and the person who really inspired me to move in that direction was, um, is the late writer Tatiana de la Tierra. Um, I don't know if anybody here is familiar with her. She was, um, a Colombian lesbian and poet and, um, and she had a phenomenal sense of humor. Um, and uh, a collection of her work has uh, recently been released in Spanish. It's on a Colombian press. And uh, the collection is titled Redonda y Radical, <laughs> Fat and Radical. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, doctor. I can't really. Um... <laughs> oh. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, so I don't have to yell for them. Um, for Lucas especially. Um, you were commissioned by a family member, and you still want to be truthful. Now, truth is obviously not always comfortable, and so getting it right, especially if you're in such a close proximity during the process of writing this, how do you bridge that? Because there must be some things where she wasn't making the best choices or she might have been, you know, um, not super proud of, of her behavior in a moment. How are you still truthful while providing a work where she can actually like, she's happy with the outcome. She can live with that outcome and she can be happy with the legacy of that. So one of the, one of the ways my cousin has described the experience of having to live with what had been written about her is as this sort of bag filled with skeletons that she's been forced to carry. And she didn't, she doesn't want the weight of that bag any longer. And so um, what she wanted to do along with me was to open that bag and remove every single skeleton. And we're gonna inventory every single bone. And she shied away from nothing because um, at the root of, um, of sort of the, the transformation that happened to her, what set her on that path toward criminalization was an experience of incest. And she was very explicit with me about who perpetrated it, how they perpetrated it, began when she was six years old. So she laid it all on the table and she told me that she wanted uh, to be incredibly transparent because incest is something we do not talk about. And she said, we're going to do that. We're going to bring the skeleton out. So she was, she was incredibly generous with me. Incredibly generous. Yeah. Yeah. There was, it, it didn't feel like you were shying away from anything no. in that essay. That was like. It was hard. It was hard. Yeah. Yeah. And with a title of the title essay, <laughs> um, I, I admit I was weeping throughout most of that. Like it's, it's a. Yet laughing at the same time. Imagine that. <laughs> Miriam Gerva. Um, I think we're about at signing time. It's been an hour. Um, I would like to ask the member of the audience who has the Gerba stand bag how I might purchase one because that is freaking amazing. Um, but we could go offline for that. <laughs> Thank you, Miriam. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.